Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the History Hit Warfare podcast. I'm your host, James Rogers. And if it's your first time here, well, where have you been? Each week, twice a week, we bring you brand new cutting-edge military histories with world-leading experts. And we're marking an important anniversary this week. It's important in the history of the United Kingdom, the history of terrorism and counterterrorism, and arguably the history of war and peace. It was this week, on December 2nd, 1999, that the Good Friday Agreement was implemented, an agreement that brought a political end to most of the violence of the Troubles, a conflict in Northern Ireland that spilled across Britain that had ensued since the 1960s. Northern Ireland's present-day devolved system of government is based on the Good Friday Agreement, as was its demilitarised and increasingly open borders, much of which has come under discussion again with the implementation of the Brexit Withdrawal Agreement. So, it seems like the ideal time for us to revisit this history and explore how we got to where we are today. To talk us through this, we have counterterrorism expert Tom Parker on the podcast. Tom is an experienced counterterrorism expert. He was blown up by the IRA in the 1990s, joined MI5 not long after that, and was involved in the investigation into the Provisionals bombing of Bishopgate in 1993. He later became a war crimes investigator in Bosnia. He then went on to work with the Office of the National Security Advisor in Baghdad, Iraq, during the Iraq War, and today he works for the United Nations. He's just authored a new book called Avoiding the Terrorist Trap, Why Respect for Human Rights is the Key to Defeating Terrorism. And you can even get 55% off the book by using the code in the show notes. So here is Tom Parker on the Troubles in Northern Ireland. Hi, Tom. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. How are you doing today? Oh, fantastic. Thanks. And it's entirely my pleasure. Where in the world are you speaking to us from? So I'm currently based in Abuja in Nigeria. And what do you do there? So I'm a program officer with the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime, but of course, speaking to you today purely in a private capacity. 
of course, and very much about a different period and a different part of your career. One which precedes the Good Friday Agreement, which we have the anniversary of its implementation on December 2nd, just coming up. So it's great to have you on to talk about this period that you were actively involved in, and to talk a bit about the origins of the Troubles in Northern Ireland. So let's start with this broader history, shall we? When should we say that the Troubles in Northern Ireland began? Was this Buntollet Bridge or the Battle of the Bogside? Are we correct to talk about this, I don't know, starting in 1969? Well, I think you probably want to go back a lot further than that. So, you know, back to the days of the Tudors and, and Henry VIII, right? This is a long, spooling crisis. But the Troubles themselves, yeah, I think, in fact, it's really interesting that you mentioned Buntollet Bridge because I think that is a fairly critical moment in the Troubles, but I think we could take a step a little bit further before that. And if I was going to talk about it, I think I would talk, mostly I'd start the conversation talking about the Northern Ireland Civil Rights Association. Because what's so interesting about the conflict in Northern Ireland, the Troubles is only the third, actually I suppose you could argue even the, the fourth iteration of IRA violence in the 20th century. So you have obviously the Easter Uprising and then the War of Irish Independence, but you also have a flaring up post-partition during the Second World War. There's a degree of IRA activity, both on the British mainland and, of course, north of the border, and indeed some friction between the IRA and the Irish government, which is trying to preserve its neutrality. Then you have the cross-border campaign in the late 50s and early 60s, where you have the IRA based in the south trying to carry out almost guerrilla-style raids into the north, particularly on police stations. That goes quiet. It's not a particularly successful campaign. And the political space moves to this non-violent attempt to raise the issues of the Republican, Catholic, nationalist community, depending on how you would want to describe it, in a non-violent way. And it's a movement that's explicitly inspired by Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement in the South of the United States. And what's so interesting about that is it's met with violence. And one of the places that it is met with violence is Batollet Bridge. And you have that as a very symbolic moment where essentially Protestant thugs attack what is, broadly speaking, a peaceful march. And there are a number of people on that march who go on to become quite active members of the IRA, who had up until that point been peace campaigners. And the two people that spring to mind immediately when I think of that are Marion and Dolores Price, who were both sisters who got heavily involved in the IRA in the 1970s. Bobby Sands also talks about how Bentonic Bridge was the moment that got him involved in the IRA and realized that violence was going to be a necessary part of advancing the nationalist and Republican stroke Catholic community's interests. So it it is really interesting. I mean, you have a pattern of historic marginalization that goes back decades, arguably centuries. You have the legacy of partition at the beginning of the 20th century. And then in the 1960s, you very specifically have this blocking of dissent, this blocking of peaceful dissent and a movement for peaceful change that because that's blocked, you see the community turning towards violence as a way of advancing their goals because they've tried the peaceful approach and it hasn't succeeded. Well, the peaceful approach, the peaceful protests aren't just blocked, are they, Tom? There's a couple of key moments when it comes down to the British military where they very much get it wrong. And here we're talking about moments like Bloody Sunday. Is this the sort of point here in the early 1970s after the peace protests have been met with resistance and they haven't brought about change that we start to see the violence really ramping up and it's incidents like Bloody Sunday that become a major recruiter for the IRA? 
in essence, is absolutely right. But of course, it's again, it's a slightly more interesting story than that. People forget that the British Army deployed in Northern Ireland basically as a peacekeeping force to separate two sides and actually, to a large extent, to protect the Catholic side from the Protestant side. But it becomes very difficult to remain neutral when the side that you're protecting does not share the same symbols and values that you do. And the side that, in theory, you're protecting them from do. And I'm thinking about things like the Union Jack, right? You know, if you're a soldier with a Union Jack on your shoulder and the, you know, the loyalists are, you know, they're painting their curbstones red, white and blue, you are going to have a certain sympathy for one side of this argument. The IRA had a very, very, the provisional IRA I'm talking about now, had a very deliberate strategy of, and I quote, eroding the neutrality of the British Army. So think about that for a moment. At the beginning of the conflict, the IRA was looking at the British Army as something that was essentially, broadly speaking, obviously a representative of, as they would see it, the occupying power. But they also understood the context that the army had deployed in was not necessarily a confrontational context, and it would suit their interests to turn it into a confrontational context, which they then set about to do in a variety of ways, and that the British Army played into in a variety of ways. So it's not so much that the army came in sort of all gung-ho, ready to you know, to put the stick about and, and teach you know, one community a lesson. It's that the army got dragged in partially by the logic of what armies do, by putting troops on the streets, by running roadblocks, by trying to control movement between areas, into doing the sorts of activities, the sorts of things that actually alienated a part of a community that you might say was almost pre-programmed to be alienated by them. And the British government could have approached this in a way that was more nuanced, but I think in fairness to the Brits, you know, events on the ground have their own logic. And inherently, it would have been very, very difficult to put a British army on the streets of Catholic neighborhoods in Northern Ireland without a degree of tension developing. So you might even want to start the conversation with, was this the right tool? Well, the reality is it was probably the only tool that was available. And so events kind of take on almost you know, an inevitable logic of their own where it becomes impossible to start the slide into confrontation, particularly where people are acting very purposefully and very deliberately to provoke it. And it's very hard to ask young men in uniform not to be provoked, particularly when they're in the warfighting business. And particularly also because you've got to remember the British Army is coming into this with a context of the end of the British colonies, of fighting post-colonial wars. So there's an apocryphal story, and I, honestly, I've never been able to get to the bottom of the, whether or not it's true or not. But there's a story about how one of the units that deployed very early on in Northern Ireland had come from Aden. And when they unpacked their uh, anti-riot box to get out the kit, so back in the day, you know, when you we read the riot act, literally read the riot act, right? There would be banners to tell people to disperse. And when they pulled the banners out, they were all in Arabic because they'd just come of course, from Aden. Now that, as I say, is apocryphal. I don't know if that's literally true, but it captures a slightly wider truth in that you had many people applying in Northern Ireland the kind of ideas that they'd worked out previously in places like Malaya and Kenya. I mean, I'm thinking particularly, you mentioned Bloody Sunday, you know, the overall commander of the unit and that was Frank Kitson, who'd written about the use of counter gangs in Kenya and it also served in Malaya. So you had this kind of, and Kitson was a very smart fella, who wrote, you know, a very, just before he deployed to Northern Ireland, had been, I, I forget whether it was Oxford or Cambridge, you know, writing Low Intensity Operations, which is this very seminal book about counterinsurgency warfare. I mean, no fool he, but he also got pulled into this environment despite his experiences and his learning, partly because analogy is a very, very bad guide to future policymaking. 
And often what looks like something you've encountered before actually is something quite different. And if you just try and pull a ready-made solution from your kit bag, it often doesn't quite work out the way it did last time. Because this isn't an Aiden. This isn't a Kenya. Before that, it isn't a Malaya. This is a city of the United Kingdom. It's a part of the United Kingdom where we have British troops deployed on the streets to keep peace. Now, that term peacekeeping, of course, is a very difficult one to think about in this context, that you could ever have a British army as being impartial there. But take us a little bit more into detail here. What sort of strategies and tactics do the British get wrong when they're trying to keep the peace, trying to keep stability during that period, that very tense period of the Troubles? Well, I think there's two things. So first, I'm going to go back to that word impartial, because should the British army be impartial on British streets? when there's a challenge to the British government. I mean, they are the British army. So expecting them to be impartial is probably a little unrealistic. It's not quite within their mandate, is it? Not quite their... It's not going to be their operating point of departure. It's hard enough for UN peacekeepers to be impartial. You look through the history of UN peacekeeping and you look at present UN peacekeeping and you start to see how more robust mandates allow peacekeepers to use force in certain circumstances, which inevitably means taking a side. So when it comes down to the British Army itself, which is operating to uphold British law and order, then, uh, yeah, impartiality probably is a, a difficult one to maintain. Yeah, force always comes with permanent consequences, right? And they're very difficult to walk back. And sometimes you may have to use force, but it should never be something that's done lightly. And it should be done, you know, if you are going to do it, you, it's really best that you've thought through the future consequences of that action in advance. And you don't often have the luxury of doing that, right? So in the context of Northern Ireland, though, we make a lot of very purposeful mistakes in the first, you know, the first, let's say, six or seven years of the conflict through to around about 1975. And there are sort of really, I would say, I mean, broadly speaking, in counterterrorism, we talk about what really are sort of four pillars of executive action that you can get involved in in counterterrorism. There is sort of surveillance. There's sort of investigative interviewing and intelligence gathering there's detention and there's the use of force. And if you look at those kind of four pillars of action, in all of those four pillars, we made some pretty foolish mistakes in those early years in Northern Ireland. So if we were to take, and surveillance perhaps is the least compelling area in which there were mistakes, but what's quite interesting about British surveillance culture in that period is it is ungoverned in a very real sense. This is before, for example, the Interception of Communications Act. So even in the night, well, throughout the 1970s, it's not until 1984, I believe, that in a criminal case, Malone versus the United Kingdom, that the UK has taken to the European Court of Human Rights because you don't actually have any due process governing the use of electronic surveillance or telephone intercepts. And that's why we have the Interception of Communication Act. So there's a very permissive environment in intelligence gathering. It's very uncontrolled. But in the context of the other three pillars, you see some real problems. Um, investigative interviewing in the context. Well, let me start actually with detention because we have internment. So internment is a category of detention without charge or trial, right? So the government makes essentially an administrative decision to take somebody off the streets and deprive them of liberty for presumably an important executive purpose. There should be a degree of oversight to it, but it tends to be quite a high-handed measure. Right? Normally, you would have to hold somebody for 24, 48 hours, charge them with a crime or release them. That would be the normal run of things. Internment allows you to a lot more latitude. 
First, you're not actually holding anybody for a criminal offence. You're holding them because it's an administrative process, and that means that you know the usual criminal justice rules do not apply. So in Northern Ireland, this was done under, I want to say, the Defence of the Realm Act that goes back, I want to say, till before the First World War, which is where these emergency powers come from. And you have Operation Demetrius. So this is this uh, operation that's launched by the British government in August 1971 to try and nip the provisional IRA in the bud, basically. So you have two different actors on the ground on the the, uh, nationalist side in 1971. You have the official IRA, which is still a very southern-based entity, the traditional IRA. And then you have this breakaway from the provisional IRA, which is sort of a younger, more 70s organization with you know, a stronger Marxist core. And it's similar in some respects to what you're seeing on the mainland Europe with Bader Meinhof and the Red Brigades. They're part of that kind of continuum of young 70s radicals. And they're much more aggressive. And so the idea behind internment is to try and sort of have a chilling effect on the whole process by grabbing all the players and taking them off the streets. So a lot of things go wrong very, very quickly. The first off is they don't get the right people. So most of the people they pull off the streets are from the official IRA. They don't really get any of the significant players from the provisional IRA, so much so that the IRA army chief of staff is even able to hold a press conference that he invites the media to while the British army is running around grabbing the wrong people. Within three months, they've released half the people that they pulled in. Many of these people, the files that they've used on which to to make these arrests are very dated. Remember I mentioned that cross-border campaign from 56 to 63? That's broadly speaking where a lot of the intelligence material has come from. There's a famous story of an old man who got picked up who's in his uh, 70s or 80s, and they release him pretty quickly. They obviously realize that he's probably out of the fight by this point, and he gives this great interview to the press where he just says, look, I'm just glad the Brits still think I'm a threat. But the reality is what they've done is you know, disrupt many lives, create a great deal of uncertainty, and got the wrong people. Coupled to that, they decide with some of the people who they do think they have caught who are active players to subject them to what is, to all intents and purposes, something close to or akin to torture. Now, I'm using a little bit of wiggle room here because this is slightly complicated too. It's even quite difficult to say who did it, but a combination of military and police interrogators interviewed somewhere around 10, 11, 12 individuals, may have been more, but we know for sure, I think of about 12 people who were actually put through what's known as interrogation and death. And this was the application of five techniques, five techniques which included things like hooding, the use of stress positions, the withholding of sleep, so sleep deprivation, the use of white noise, and withholding food and water. Those techniques might sound familiar to you because they are also very similar to some of the enhanced interrogation techniques that were authorized by the Bush administration in the context of the war on terror. We know that no meaningful intelligence was produced by subjecting these individuals to these techniques. And we know that at least one of the individuals who was subjected to these techniques, particularly the use of white noise, which was the repetitious playing of grinding machinery or grinding mechanical noises, actually tried to bash his brains out on a pipe in the the cell that he was restrained in. So we know that it had a huge impact on the people who suffered this. It didn't produce any intelligence, but what it did result in after these individuals were released and the, the story got out was the United Kingdom was taken to the European Court of Human Rights by the government of Ireland. This is the only time so far in history that one state has taken another state to the European Court of Human Rights. Now, back in those days, 
There was actually a commission on human rights that then referred things to the court. That's not the case anymore. But the commission described what had been done with interrogation in depth as a modern system of torture. It was the court that referred to it as cruel and human degrading treatment. Um, but of course, a massive propaganda disaster for the UK. It did devastating damage to the relationship between the British government and the Irish government. And, and bear in mind, the Irish government, while it has a complicated relationship with Irish nationalism in the north, typically Irish governments have been hostile to the IRA because the IRA was on the wrong side, the losing side of the Irish civil war. So there is antipathy, and in previous iterations of IRA violence, like the Second World War, and during the cross-border campaign, the Irish government did cooperate with the British government in trying to bring these conflicts to an end, and in fact also introduced internment in their own country to intern members of the IRA. So you had a situation where one of your key potential security partners has been completely alienated by the techniques you've used, and you've gained you know, no real benefit from using them. And then finally, we also have this issue of the use of force, and you've already alluded to Bloody Sunday, and there are many other uh, you know, sort of iconic incidents in which the British military used force in a way that was either massively disproportionate, like on Bloody Sunday, or massively counterproductive. And that's even in the most controlled circumstances. British special forces were deployed in Northern Ireland between 1976 and 1987. In that period, they killed around about, I think it's 30 IRA members, provisional IRA members, and two members of the Irish National Liberation Army. But in that same period, they also managed to kill six innocent bystanders. So, you know, do the math on that. That's essentially one innocent person for every five terrorists killed. And in some of those circumstances, there were tremendous fallout from these innocent individuals who were killed. The most famous case, and I think very emblematic case for me, is, is the case of a 16-year-old called John Boyle. He found an IRA arms cache in a graveyard that was used by his family. And he found basically some weapons. He told his dad. His dad told the police. And the police told the British military. And the SAS set up an ambush waiting for somebody from the IRA to come along and collect these weapons. Unfortunately, the person who came along was the young boy who had found the guns. And of course, you know, guns are pretty exciting to young male children. So he'd come back to have another look at them. And he was shot shot by the, the SAS. They, of course, said he threatened them and raised a weapon, but in fact, the uh, SAS troopers who shot him were actually charged with murder. They were acquitted, but you could imagine, again, the chilling effect that an event like this would have on members of the public who might come forward to cooperate with the authorities. They're going to think twice next time. So, you know, we see in a, a variety of different ways the very aggressive, force-driven, almost autocratic uh, techniques used by the British military in those early years of the conflict, actually having a, you know, a major detrimental effect on Britain's overall effort to try and reduce IRA violence and you know, obviously defeat the IRA. And in fact, one of the interesting things in terms of the escalation of violence, internment was introduced in 1971 because essentially in the first eight months of the year, you had a situation where something like 21 individuals had been killed in escalating violence. And this had got to the point that the Northern Ireland government felt something needed to be done. Internment was introduced in the last four months of the year. You had 147 people killed in terrorist violence. And then the next year, that number jumps again to around about 467 people. So you see a massive escalation in the conflict. Now, proximity is not causation, but reading, looking at the reasons why people give for why they became involved in the IRA, why they became active 
internment and interrogation and death in particular are cited as one of the major reasons why people became involved in the movement. Imagine a millennium that laid the foundations for the modern world as we know it today, when kingdoms were forged, languages shaped, cultures created. I'm Dr. Kat Jarman, and on Gone Medieval, my co-host Matt Lewis and I will tell you just why the so-called Dark Ages really weren't that dark after all. Subscribe to Gone Medieval by History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. So if we combine these court cases, these spikes in violence, and these era-defining cases of, well, like Bloody Sunday, where 13 people were killed and 15 people wounded after the Parachute Regiment opened fire on a civil rights demonstration in the Bogside. If we combine all of these together, can we start to see why the provisionals start to grow in strength? And then, of course, much later on, why we have to see that there is only a political solution to the violence in Northern Ireland. Yeah, no, I think you can You can absolutely make that argument. There's a lot of research done on micromobilization, which is you know, a sociological term for why individuals join a particular movement. And we know, as I just mentioned, that a lot of people will cite the experience of these events as a reason why they joined the IRA, just as, you know, when we were talking about Marion and Dolores Price, you know, that Bantollet was such an important issue for them. So we know, and, and this is 
by the way, not unique to Northern Ireland. This is something that is one of the constants of terrorism research across decades, across geographical locations, across movements. One of the primary drivers of terrorism is human rights abuse and being on the experience of abuse by regimes. So we know that this is always going to be a terrorist driver. One of the interesting things about the European Convention on Human Rights and the fact that the British government was brought before the European Court of Human Rights a number of times because of the actions of the British government, the British military, in the context of Northern Ireland and indeed in operations against the IRA outside Northern Ireland, like in Gibraltar. We know that this created a sense of awareness and knowledge of the legal regime that they should be operating within. And that had a cooling effect on the more aggressive activities that were helping to fuel the conflict. I mean, you could almost make the argument that the European Convention on Human Rights and the application of its standards actually helped the British government get to a point where it could have a more productive relationship with the Irish government and you could have a peace process. And also a more productive relationship actually also with the warring parties and particularly in the, the nationalist community. So I think you can make that argument quite strongly. And in fact, you know, it, it's in the heat of battle. It's when both sides are killing people that it's very difficult to find common ground and very difficult to even think about having the space to have some kind of peace process. And that logic, that uh, dynamic impacts both sides. It's not just the government that is restrained by its constituents' sense of what's right and wrong. That is also true for terrorist organizations. They also have constituents. There's a fantastic phrase from Eamon Collins, who was a, a member of the IRA's Intelligence and Security Brigade. You know, he talked about how the IRA operated within a series of unspoken constraints and no less powerful for being left unspoken, which is the community had to approve of their actions. And when the community didn't approve of their actions, they lost influence. And one of the most interesting moments in the peace process and in the run-up to the peace process is the Warrington bombing. You may remember that. That's the event in... Uh, I forget the years, the early 1990s, I think, when a bomb explodes outside of McDonald's in Warrington. And the device has been left inside a rubbish bin. There is no warning in Warrington. This is because the IRA rang a warning through to the Samaritans and an automatic switching system used by the Samaritans meant the warning was referred to a different city. The IRA warning is there's a bomb outside McDonald's in the high street. A lot of high streets in British cities have McDonald's. So essentially the bomb went off without no warning and it, it killed two children, Tim Panny and Jonathan Ball. And the shock and the horror of their deaths and the fact that the bomb had been planted outside of McDonald's provoked a powerful backlash with the nationalist community against the provisional IRA. And you had a lacuna, an opportunity for talks to gather some momentum because the IRA was on the defensive. It was pulling back. It was suspending its uh, terrorist operations for a while to think through what had happened. And that created a moment where dialogue could develop and take root. So it's really interesting the way these different historical processes and different political processes interact with each other. It's an important point to make, isn't it? Because it's not like the provisional IRA was not without sin and didn't get things terribly wrong on occasions. We can look back to various bombings, both in the mainland of the UK and in Northern Ireland, but of course, some of the most seminal moments, like you say, we've got Warrington in 1993, but there's also Enniskillen as well. Do you think this is also another turning point where perhaps public opinion starts to turn against the provisionals and they have to start to move towards the table from their side as well? Does this start to generate a ripe moment for peace? 
Yeah, no, Enniskillen's a little bit earlier than Warrington, so it's a slightly different political situation back in November 1987. I mean, perhaps it's worth just reminding the audience what actually took place. The Provisional IRA planted a 40-pound bomb, basically by the war memorial in the town of Enniskillen, that was detonated during a Remembrance Day ceremony at the site. And it killed 10 civilians, a police officer, and I believe, I think um, another victim actually ended up dying 13 years later, having been left in a coma for, after the attack. And there were many, many, many injuries. I mean, it was an awful attack. That did profound damage to the IRA's reputation, both within its own community and in the wider world at large. The Republican newspaper, APRN or Republican News, actually described in an editorial the bombing as a monumental error that would only serve to strengthen the provisional IRA's opponents. We know that the fallout from the attack damaged the performance of Sinn Féin, the political wing of the IRA. In the 1987 general election, their share of the vote fell by 2.2%. And we know that eventually the IRA disbanded the West Fermanagh Brigade that was responsible for the attack because of the fact that it was too violent, ultimately. Um, and they were disbanded in January 1989. So it's a fantastic example, perhaps not of an event that created space for dialogue, but it is a fantastic example of how even terrorists have constituents and they have to think very carefully about how those constituents are reacting to the way that they are behaving. And that, of course, does mean that they calibrate their approach and their use of violence differently. While the IRA did many, many, many nasty things, and I speak as somebody who was blown up myself by the IRA, so I don't want to minimize that in any way, shape or form, they did show an aversion all the way through the conflict to mass casualty attacks, for example. And one only needs to compare IRA operations to, for example, some of the ISIS operations we've seen you know, in, the, in the last 10 years to realize that there are gradations of violence. And the IRA used violence actually in quite a targeted manner for the most part. And they did avoid mass casualty attacks. And that was because they understood that their constituents were only prepared to accept a certain level of violence. And I think that's the significance of Enniskillen in many ways. Well, this seems like the right time to bring your personal history into this, because like you say, you were one such target of those bombings. What brought you into the firing line, Tom? How does your personal history fit into the history of the Troubles? Well, when I was a student at university, I went to a birthday party of a friend of mine, someone I'd been at school with, which was being held in the Honourable Artillery Company, which is a territorial army regiment of the, the British military. And my friend's father, in fact, was a member of this uh, TA unit. And he rented out, uh, not the officer's mess, but I think a function room in the Honourable Artillery Company headquarters for his son's 21st birthday party. And I was at that party and the IRA put a bomb on the roof of the building, which detonated and thankfully didn't kill anybody, but quite badly injured you know, a number of my friends. And obviously that had a pretty profound effect on me at the time. And... You know, in those days, we're talking now, this, is, this would have been 1990. It wasn't like you could wander up, pop around the corner to the recruiting office and join MI5. That wasn't how it worked. But the opportunity to join the security service came along to me around about the same period. And because of my experience, I was very keen to join. And, you know, it was very interesting, actually, because obviously, having been on the receiving end, I had quite strong opinions about Northern Ireland and about terrorism. And, uh, you know, I, I obviously... Uh, was very excited to have my opportunity to fight back, as it were. And I remember 
hugely compelling moment in my life, in my career, was when I was seconded to work on um, the mainland bombing campaign. If you remember the big truck bombs that the IRA detonated in, in London and in... Yes, uh, of course. Yes, of course. So I was a very, very small part of one of the investigative teams working on the Bishopsgate bombing. And when I moved to that section to be involved in that, the security service is a, you know, a very thoughtful organization. And before you work on targets like uh, the IRA, you went off on a briefing course to learn about it. And so there was something in the security service back then called the Northern Ireland Background Briefing Course. And it was a week-long course where essentially you had an opportunity to learn in depth the history of the Troubles, the history of the British in Ireland. We had speakers from the Angarda Shikana. The Irish police came over. They brought out intelligence assets from the province. The IUC was there at the time. So you got lots and lots of different perspectives. It was an absolutely fascinating course. But I always remember walking out of the course on Friday afternoon, going to the pub, just thinking, my God, no wonder they hate us. Because you suddenly were opened up to a completely different perspective on why things were happening. One that wasn't taught in our schools. You know, and I was a you know, political science major and I studied history and all that, but I knew very little about the history of the UK and Northern Ireland. And it's, to say it's a complex history, is the kindest way of putting it. I mean, it, the British have behaved very badly in Northern Ireland over an extended period. So, you know, for me, that was really where I started to realize there were two sides to the argument. And that doesn't mean that I have any sympathy for the use of violence as a way to achieve political goals, but it awakened my understanding to the fact that terrorism doesn't drop out of a clear blue sky, right? Terrorists are carrying out a political campaign for a purpose and they have reasons why they're doing what they're doing. And sometimes those reasons will have some legitimacy, you know, particularly when they're put in the context, the historical context and, and the current context in which the individuals involved are living. And that was, I think, a game-changing moment for me at least, because it gave me a much greater insight, a much more nuanced approach to doing the, my work as an investigator at the time, and subsequently my own studies and writings. You know, it, it just gave me a broader perspective to trying to understand why terrorism, you know, why it happens, why it ebbs and flows in intensity, what approaches might be more or less effective in terms of, of trying to confront it. And of course, it takes us back to your original point about counterterrorism and counterterrorism strategy, about how when counterterrorism goes wrong, it can not only be ineffective, but it sets in motion a chain of events which can really destabilise a region and very much end up to, in this case, the British losing any sort of chance of achieving their political aims during the conflict against the provisionals. No, I think that's exactly right. And, you know, as you alluded to in your question there, on your comment there, you know, this is not just something that we see in Northern Ireland. I had the opportunity, I had a, I've had a fairly odd and diverse career. When I left the security service, I went to the Balkans and spent four years as a war crimes investigator for the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, working on crimes committed by Muslim volunteers who fought for the Bosnian government against the Croats and the Serbs, many of whom were the nucleus or would go on to be the nucleus of Al-Qaeda or be involved in the fringes of other Islamist groups. So I had had this really interesting sort of 10-year period where I really had an opportunity to sort of look under the hood of terrorism. And in 2003, when the Iraq war broke out and uh, coalition forces occupied Iraq, I was asked to go to Baghdad as part of the Coalition Provisional Authority, as one of the members of the British team in the Coalition Provisional Authority, to work there. And this is where I really started to see these processes firsthand. 
and I got to watch us alienate the Iraqi community in all the same kind of ways that the British Army and all the same mistakes that the British Army had made in Northern Ireland in the early 1970s. And when I left the CPA, I had this opportunity, very luckily for me, to go to Yale and spend six months in a fellowship thinking about all of this. And that led to the work that I've done ever since, which is around the importance of conducting counterterrorism within a human rights framework, precisely because it stops you falling into the trap that terrorists are setting out to push you into. And am I right in thinking that, of course, there isn't that much time difference between the Good Friday Agreement in 1999 and then the war in Iraq in 2003, and there's a number of personnel that have been involved in counterterrorism in Northern Ireland that are then placed into the Iraqi context as well. So much like you spoke about when you spoke about Aden and Kenya earlier on in the 1960s and 70s and some of the strategies and tactics being moved over and even equipment, do we start to see a transfer of those same counterterrorism strategies into the Iraqi context? Well, I think inevitably, yes, you know, because you have people, I mean, a tremendous number of people who served in Iraq would have had experience in Northern Ireland. And of course, Britain by that point had a very clear doctrine of operations for conducting those kind of counterterrorism, counterinsurgency operations in the field. So, you know, very much so. And in fact, I remember this myself with an echo of those Arab banners. You know, I I remember seeing a, a British Army Land Rover drive past me in Baghdad and it still had the terrorist hotline from Northern Ireland painted on the side of it. And I had this lovely image of a resident of Baghdad trying to ring this number and getting somebody from the RUC with an impenetrable accent and just the confusion that would have followed. But yeah, no, absolutely. I think you saw that exactly and you saw that in the, the way that the British military tried to calibrate you know, soft skin vehicles, getting the body armor off, you know, all the same kind of escalation, de-escalation tools that they used in Northern Ireland as well to try and win over the local population. But of course, we understood the context in Iraq, I think, far less well than we understood the context in Northern Ireland. And even understanding a context intimately doesn't necessarily mean that you make the right decisions. So, you know, I I think there's no question that Basra for the British forces was a, a far tougher environment than Northern Ireland. I mean, just the language barrier alone is such a challenge. Well, Tom, thank you so much for taking us through the history of the Troubles and your own personal history. And we're going to have to get you back on to talk about your experiences in Bosnia and in Iraq as well. But tell us, where can people read more about your work on counterterrorism? Well, thank you very much for asking, James. So I wrote a fairly large book about all of this called Avoiding the Terrorist Trap, Why Respect for the Human Rights is the Key to Defeating Terrorism. And it's a book that essentially looks at three different main areas. The first is what terrorists are trying to achieve. And I spent literally years trying to read every original document I could lay my hands on written by terrorist organizations over a time span of about 150 years from all over the world about what they were trying to achieve. Terrorists are prolific self-publicists. So you have memoirs, you have operational manuals, you obviously have communiques. Nowadays, you have all the social media posts. And there's no real secret to what they're trying to achieve or how they're trying to achieve it. So the first sort of third of the book is is trying to break down this terrorist doctrine, which I think you can very clearly identify that's been applied by different terrorist groups for 150 years all over the world. The second part of the book is looking at the social science about why we think people join terrorist groups. And there's been an explosion in the research on this in the last 20 years. So I set out to try and read just about everything that had been written in that context, which has become increasingly and exponentially harder over time, and try and distill it down to what the main 
sort of theories are and the main drivers we've identified and credibly identified as being something that fuels terrorism. And then I wanted to look at what do the counterterrorists do? What tools do the states have and how can they apply them most effectively? And it was sort of my contention that they could apply them most effectively within this human rights framework, which I should also say is, is actually really quite permissive. You know, you can spy, you can surveil, you can bug, you can run undercover officers, you can run penetration agents, you can do recruitments, you can do false flags. You know, there is a huge range of things that you can do within a human rights framework as long as you do it with due process and essentially in a lawful and proportional manner. And that's the same also in terms of detention operations, it's the same also in terms of the use of force. I wanted to make the argument that actually you could conduct counterterrorism far more effectively by staying within that human rights framework than stepping outside it. Because history teaches us, and there are so many examples of this, that every time a state decides to get tough, take off the gloves, step outside the bounds of their normal lawful behavior, typically what happens is things go south pretty quickly. And that's in terms of things like torture, extrajudicial killings, arbitrary detention, all of these things just end up adding fuel to the fire and making the situation far, far worse. And that famous phrase that the IRA used to use, it turns the army into a recruiting sergeant for the terrorist organization. So that was it in a nutshell. And if people are interested to learn more, they should pick up a copy. Uh, The paperback just came out this week. That's fantastic. Congratulations on that. We'll pop a link in the bio. And you're always welcome on the History Hit Warfare podcast. Thanks, Tom. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.